Hello and a very warm welcome to the October edition of the Vera Magazine podcast. I'm Johnny Ensel, here is your guide to the world's hot happenings, trending destinations and the best new films and TV shows. This month we'll be dropping into Seattle to find out why makers, artisans and other crafty types can't get enough of the Emerald City, welling up as our film critic delivers his verdict on Pixar's newest movie and hearing from a Bronx-based breakdancer about his memories of the early days of hip-hop. And also listen out for a little bit of this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Are you a computer, Al? I couldn't possibly tell you that, Johnny. I'm going to send you a <laughs> capture, okay? <laughs> Up first, we have Red Hot, a segment overflowing with info about interesting things happening in the worlds of culture, entertainment, and travel. And for this, we're joined by Vera editor Jessica Pupes. Hello, Jess. Hello. I'm uh, sure you're overflowing with red hot picks, so please give us your first one. So do you know the director Spike Lee? Yeah, I do know Spike Lee. Uh, I know his film Do the Right Thing. I'm a big fan of that. Yes, one of his earlier films and one of his best. More recently, he's done films like Black Klansman. Yeah, um, also love that. But yeah, he's he's one of the most influential American directors of all time. He's known for depicting black life in the U.S., um, he's also known for, you know, being quite pop culture savvy. Mm. Uh, he started out directing music videos and he continued doing that throughout his career. So he is, his influences are being explored uh, in this new exhibition called Spike Lee Creative Sources, which is taking place at the Brooklyn Museum between October 7th and February 4th. Okay. Um, and what can you see as part of that? A lot of the things in the exhibition will be things taken from his personal collection. So a lot of his records, his art, some of his films, but some will include works by painters like Gehindi Wiley and Deborah Roberts. And there's also instruments once owned by famous musicians. So Prince's guitar will be on display, for example. Um, and there will also be set dressings and props from a lot of his films, uh, Spike Lee's films, just out of interest for people going. Okay, cool. So it's basically just loads of Spike Lee's stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's the Spike Lee extended universe. <laughs> yeah, excellent. With some other stuff that's kind of influential to Spike Lee as part of it. Yeah. So if you're a Spike Lee head, it's definitely the place to go. Well, it's kind of like wandering around Spike Lee's head. If you're a Spike Lee yeah. head, go inside Spike Lee's head. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, definitely worth a trip to Brooklyn for that. Mm. Uh, what's next, please, Jess? Jello shots. Mm. Or what we might know as jelly shots in the UK. Oh, really? Is that what they're called here? Well, it, I mean, it's only the difference between an O and a Y, but yes, jelly right, shots. Right, of course, because yes. Jell-O's the brand uh-huh. and jelly is what it is. Yeah, but I know, you know, I, I can't say that I had much experience with jelly or jello shots as a, a, a young man, but well, I, kinda, many, I know what they are. <laughs> many things in the UK are jellied. Mm, like? Jellied eels? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't. I haven't had much experience with those either. But it's it's basically sort of alcohol in the guise of uh, a dessert. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jello is famously uh, a snack for kids, mm-hmm. but Jello shots are the alcoholic version of that. And you're about to tell me that they've become cool now. Yes, they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who's making them cool? <laughs> well, the leaders in this trend are 
a company called Solid Wiggles. Solid, hang on, Solid Wiggles. Solid Wiggles. It's yeah. A bit, it's, it's a little oxymoron. <laughs> they are a New York-based company. I've seen them the last few years just all over Instagram because they make jelly products, basically. They specialize in jelly cakes and jello shots, and they supply a lot of the bars in New York. Um, for example, Lise and Vito in Brooklyn, which is a natural wine bar, um, and they supply their jello shots there so and they have different flavors like cosmos midori sour it's just a bit of fun really okay so it's like a kind of classic cocktail condensed into jello form yeah there's also at marion's also in new york in the west village which is a new restaurant they're doing something called the negronian two acts mm-hmm. which is a jello negroni shot served with you know, your standard Negroni. Mm, so you can have your Negroni in liquid form and then in viscous <laughs> jelly form. Yeah. You can have your Negroni and drink it too. I mean, I always like to explore different textures to my uh, to my booze. So why is this coming back now? Is it just a kind of thing to do or does it have some advantages, <laughs> jellifying things? Yeah, it's just a thing to do. <laughs> just... <laughs> we're just looking for things to do grasping in the dark um we're all about fun we're all about fun yeah yeah okay well keep the wolf of existential doom from the door (laughs) of your human experience by drinking uh alcohol in jelly form (laughs) this has taken a turn i would have never predicted it's a it's a kind of dark darkly uh existential podcast this month Uh, all right let's move on from that then and uh what else are you recommending please raunchy comedies oh well this doesn't sound dark at all (laughs) no um so these are r-rated sex comedies basically yeah we know them we love them they've been fundamental for our development like american pie there's something about mary yeah 40 year old virgin super bad yeah 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 so this is basically like a, a, a kind of comedy in which people attempt with varying degrees of success to uh do the deed yeah to get it in Mm mm-hmm (laughs) <laughs> and what's what's new and interesting about uh, sex comedies? Well, I think they've kind of fallen by the wayside in the last few years with the advent of Me Too and all these new conversations mm. that just ruined everyone's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. you, I'm not uh, getting behind that idea. But <laughs> no, I'm obviously joking. Um, <laughs> but yeah, sex sex became you know complicated and maybe looking back, a lot of those films kind of perpetuate you know unpleasant ideas yeah and they're all about men Mm, yeah more to the point Mm -hmm. so they're all about men having fun and then women being the object um but now all of these new films so like joyride which is written by adele lim who worked on the script for crazy rich asians that came out this summer it's about four chinese-born women who go back to the chinese homeland um from the u.s uh and they have like a road trip style adventure and when i say road trip i mean the 2000s film road trip okay yeah yeah and then no hard feelings that's j-law jennifer lawrence's return to the screen after she had a bit of a break Mm -hmm. and that is just like your classic sex comedy it's about uh she plays a, a bartender who is employed by these two parents to date their son their nerdy son yeah yeah so it's a sort of male fantasy with a twist 
Yeah, male fantasy with a twist. But I mean, it's not really about the male fantasy. It's about the woman. Mm. It's about J-Law and her hopes and desires. And then coming out soon is Bottoms, which I'm really excited for, which is directed by Emma Seligman. She is the director of Shiva Baby, which was one of my favorite films of last year. And it stars Rachel Sennett and Ayo Edibiri. Mm, from the bear. Yes, love her. Bottoms is about two kind of nerdy high schoolers, played by Rachel and Ao, who start a fight club to hook up with hot cheerleaders. So it's right. kind of like a queer take on the genre, um, which, yeah, I'm excited for. Excellent. Well, I'll check all of those out. What's up next, please, Jess? Pally House, West Hollywood. Mm, and this is uh, this is a hotel? It is, yes. It is moments away from the Sunset Strip, so right in the heart of the action. It is a new hotel from the Pali Society Hotel Group. So they have Pali hotels, as they're called, all across the US, um, a few in LA also. But this one that just opened in West Hollywood harkens back to the first hotel that the group ever opened, which was a Pali house in West Hollywood. And this is kind of like the 2.0 version of that original Pali house. Hmm. What's the vibe? What makes it special? It's very mid-century, but it's very whimsical at the same time. They say that the concept is kind of like a boho pied-à-terre, which is, you know, a very 70s concept, I think. Mm. It's got checkerboard floors, mid-century furniture. You know, there's like a pool area where they have pink parasols, striped deck chairs. So it sounds a bit like a kind of influencer Wes Anderson fantasy place. Yeah. Go there and, and, and take nice photos. Is, is that sort of hotel? Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's, that concept is bolstered by its restaurants. So it's got the Lobby Lounge Cafe where they serve your classic kind of like Californian, crunchy, healthy, upscale food and smoothies, of course. Mm-hmm. And then it's got the mezzanine sushi, as it's called, which serves sushi because you can't have a L.A. hotel without sushi. Mm. Okay. Excellent. Thanks, Jess. What is next? Dinner by Heston Blumenthal, Dubai. Mm, yeah, Heston Blumenthal, the uh, famous Willy Wonka of Michelin-starred chefs. Yes, well put. He is known for pioneering multi-sensory cooking. He's also known for resurrecting historic British dishes. So, for example, the meat fruit. Mm. That's a historic British dish that he's famous for uh, popularizing, especially on social media. This is like a liver parfait or any some other kind of bougie meat like foie gras disguised as a fruit. Right, yeah, okay, I've seen this. So it basically looks like a satsuma, but it's pate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I'm, not, I'm probably not doing it justice with that description. <laughs> I mean, it looks very impressive. Yeah. You know, it probably kicked started that social media trend of like, Mm, is know, it cake? Is yeah. it cake? Is it meat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get it. So uh, Dinner by Heston's quite a famous restaurant in London. Where is this new Dinner by Heston? It's at Atlantis the Royal. So this is an absolutely insane and very Dubai resort complex that they call the most ultra-luxury experiential resort in the world. Mm. Okay, so there's meat fruit. Uh, What else is on the menu? Yeah, so the concept is it resurrects these classic British 
dishes, you know, some from way, way back. Like I think the oldest dish dates back from the 1300s. So there are these kind of British curiosities that have been long gone and then Heston's, you know, providing his take on them. So one of the showstopper dishes that's a very kind of Blumenthalian dish is the tipsy cake. So the tipsy cake, it says it's circa 1858. And this is, like I said, a classic British dish, uh, which is made of spit roasted pineapple. But in the Blumenthalian twist, the pineapple is turned by a giant clock. (laughs) (laughs) He's a very time obsessed man. Yes, well, I was I was just trying to get my head around the concept of spit roasted pineapple before you threw the giant clock in there. <laughs> There's no time, no time to think. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just I'll just have to accept that. Uh, okay, yeah, so it's like old stuff with a new twist, but it's all kind of weird. I mean, I'm guessing it's extremely expensive, but worth it. Oh hell yeah, um, mm. worth it. I don't know. I'll leave that up to whoever has pockets deep enough to decide because I'm not going. Yes, maybe we could say only time will tell. (laughs) Only time will tell. Mm. All right. Well, Jess, thank you so much for your picks as always. They were delightful and confusing, (laughs) (laughs) which is... uh... Well, you know, it is a good combination. Um, <laughs> that's that's how people describe me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Jess, uh, as ever. And we'll see you next month. Okay, bye. Location Scout this month heads over to Seattle, where there's a boom in everything artisanal. Makers are making the city their own and turning it into a crafty capital. Amanda Castleman is a local writer who's going to show us around, so let's see if we can get Amanda on the phone right now. Hi there. Hey Amanda, it's Johnny. Oh, hello, how's it going? Yeah, really well. Uh, Where are you today? Uh, I'm in North Seattle at a place called Seattle Recreative, and it's upcycling shops that also has a makerspace in back where they offer workshops. So this is where all of the lost markers and buttons go and then people can come and create new art out of them so this is one of seattle's hubs for crafty stuff is it yes i definitely say this this is an epicenter for innovation and upcycling um everything from paper clips to old aromatherapy pots it's kind of a epitome of a couple of seattle ideas both of this innovation and creativity but also this real environmental awareness and like what can we take and transform so, um, yeah, it feels very, it feels very Seattle here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, could you talk a bit more about those things? You know, what is it that makes Seattle special in this regard? You talked about upcycling and sustainability. What do those things mean in the context of the city? Yeah, I mean, going back a little bit, you have to remember, like, we're a very young city, so we're still finding our identity. But one thing that's been very central, like, from the Coast Salish, the indigenous people here onwards, it's a real place of super abundance, the forests, the fisheries. Um, so they had time to make art and made exquisite art. And then all these super enterprising settlers come in from places, you know, China, Japan, Latin America, Europe, uh, but places with incredible craft and art traditions. So we had a lot, a lot of talent feeding in. We had a lot of people that wanted to find fresh new horizons and make new solutions to live better. Um, so, so kind of all of that happened. Uh, we had sort of the tech boom that kind of started with the 1962 World's Fair. And that was that was kind of Seattle putting its free flag out there, 
you know, we built this giant UFO looking thing yeah. that basically declared to the world, like, we're, we're a city that is looking forward, not back. It's all about innovation. And then it just took off. You know, you've got Microsoft, Amazon. We just become a, an innovation hub. And I'm proud of us. Like, it's, it's a great vibe to live in. It attracts more like-minded people. It's a good time. So it's kind of interesting that you've got these these huge tech companies that you mentioned mm-hmm. on the one hand, and then also this kind of slightly more scruffy, scrappy, kind of use it, recycle it, upcycle it idea going on. Do those two things, are they connected somehow? Um, I can see a through line on them with this kind of non-native settler, like you had to be enterprising, um, you had to find different solutions. I grew up in the Seattle grunge era. And I mean, it was just a fantastic explosion of, of talent and, and rule breaking. And I think that's that's kind of where a lot of this comes together is, is disruption. But, you know, this is one of the most highly educated cities in the U.S. But you kind of find people that are more concerned with like snowpack and stop options. It's incredibly outdoorsy, um, as much as the West Coast is in the U.S. Um, but, yeah, you just have this this intersection of the ecology of Cascadia, um, as the Pacific Northwest is often called. Um, this incredible ecology and natural beauty all around us, the mountains, the ocean, forest, intersecting with really smart people making cool stuff. <laughs> well, you're painting a beautiful picture of the natural world meeting the tech world, meeting the world of hobbies and crafts, you know. <laughs> There's a, it's a, a Venn diagram that uh, I'd like to be in the middle of. Yeah. But what do, you, what, what do you do around the city? Where would you recommend people go if they want to get a sense oh. of this kind of uh, make do and mend culture. Yeah, well, yeah. one of my favorite stops uh, is Archie McPhee. Um, it's kind of a world famous eclectic toy store. It has all types of gizmos as well as like crafting and science project. It's a great stop, but just hilariously dumb. Like they have librarian action figures and, <laughs> you know, rubber chickens. And um, I really like Ada's Cafe, which is a sci fi and technical bookstore that's up on Capitol Hill. We've got Refract Seattle, which is um, a festival. It's just turning five, but of course, because of the, the disruption over the last couple of years, it's it's kind of its second full, full-on year. Um, and that's celebrating the idea that Seattle is kind of the glass art capital of the U.S. Mm. And uh, we actually have more hot shops here than in Venice, which is kind of wild. I'd also love to just flag the pantry, which is a community kitchen, does classes on cooking, bartending, flower dyeing. Lots of little spaces like that, just these little neighborhood hubs where you can come meet a local, make a trivet, have a good time. If you knew Seattle from the TV show Frasier and you came looking for the kind of Frasier kind of cerebral <laughs> experience, but it's also raining, is that, a, is that a kind of good indication of what Seattle's <laughs> like or not at all? Well, so, so this is a very Seattle answer. Um, I was not allowed to have a TV as a kid, so I did not watch <laughs> a lot of Frasier. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting what I've seen of the show. It feels a little bit more New York, honestly, than mm. the Seattle I've experienced as a Gen X person who went to college here in the 90s. I mean, I do think there are places you can turn to for that kind of fine art. Like, we have a silent reading night by the door at the Sorrento Hotel. Um, there's things like the Pratt fine arts center that I think would appeal more to that kind of high art creativity that people are coming in. But yeah, no, my heart's always going to be on that kind of grungy side of like Georgetown trailer park mall, you know, with like upcycled, reused, handmade products. And they have a flea market on for Saturdays as well. I'm pretty solidly in camp grunge, Mm. hold on to the 90s hard. Yeah, great. 
Well, what about eating? Because there's a certain amount of craft that goes into that as well. Is that something that uh, Seattle does well? I'd say we're very strong. Uh, We're one of the premium wine producers in the U.S. So there's an incredible wine scene, craft beer, and the food as well in Northwest intersection of, you know, we have these beautiful orchards in Eastern Washington. And I mentioned the pantry before. Um, That would probably be my first stop for someone coming here who wanted to experience the food scene. Although I will say um, monthly event downtown on Pioneer Square, the 210 Seattle Night Market, That'll also give you kind of a more casual, more authentic grunge. Mm. It's hard to go wrong here. And I will, uh, although I'm vegetarian, I will recommend our salmon, our wild-caught Alaskan salmon. The um, Alaskan fishing fleet actually overwinters here. So we have a lot of ties up to Alaska. You can get some very, very fresh, amazing seafood, sometimes fresh off the deadliest sketch boats. So when is a, a good time of year to come to Seattle? Um, my favorite time of year is definitely autumn. You know, with climate change, we are getting these kind of warmer summers. You know, if you come in October, November, uh, you may still get these bluebird days where you can see Cascade Mountains. You're, you're still going to get a mix of that good weather, but but the drizzle hasn't started. I don't know how carefully kept a secret this is, but Seattle is not actually that rainy. Oh, right. It's a good time of year for indoor activities are starting to pick up. You know, the locals have come back from the water in the mountains. Well... Seattle does sound beautiful, and um, I'm struck by the fact that it's not uh, that rainy <laughs> again. I mean, yeah, I do. Isn't it wild? Yeah, I mean, you're going to tell me that they don't have tossed salads and scrambled eggs next. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a shock, and I will give travelers one tip. If you really want to blend in, leave the, leave the barley at home. That's an excellent tip. I'll, I will leave my umbrella. Thank you so much for chatting to us, Amanda. <laughs> Thanks. It's been a pleasure. In August 1973, a young DJ named Cool Herc threw a party in New York's Bronx that changed the face of music forever. Fifty years on, what came to be known as hip-hop has touched just about every aspect of popular culture, from film and fashion to visual art and of course dance. Someone who's been head-spinning on New York sidewalks since the scene's early years is Alien Ness, a b-boy who's collaborated with some of hip-hop's biggest names and who's keeping the breaking buzz alive as he acts as a mentor for the next generation. Here's Ness to tell us more. I am Alien Ness. I'm a third generation b-boy from the Bronx, the home of hip-hop, former member of the Rocksteady crew and the New York City Breakers. It sounds really cliche when you hear people say hip-hop saved my life, but in essence, hip-hop has saved many lives as well as myself. It was just all around me. It was like being in the same cradle so to say, is hip-hop. I was engulfed in it, it was all around me. It was what we lived on a day-by-day basis. My fondest memories as a b-boy were the pilgrimage. Nowadays, anybody with high-speed internet and a phone camera can go viral. Where in my days, there was no internet. You had to actually get out of your comfort zone, your neighborhood, in a time where it was not safe to do so and go neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood just to get your name out. 
And that was the important thing. In hip-hop, it's all about the legacy. So you wanted to be the best on your block, then the best in your neighborhood, then the best in your region, the best in your borough, best in your city, and so forth and so forth. We would walk miles just listening for music to find the party. And if we found the party, we knew that we'd find other dancers. And it's really battle culture, which was the real purpose of wearing uh, cruise shirts with the name of your crew and your name in the front because you really didn't have time to talk to people. You came in, did what you did, and left. Whether you left walking or you left on a stretcher or left running, being chased, they will always remember your name. I've seen some pretty amazing things as a kid, but now as an adult, traveling the world as a judge, as a host, as a coach, as an instructor, these kids nowadays are incredible. Like the things kids are doing now are unimaginable back in my day. You have to be original. It's not just so much copying the hot viral moves. It's more about creating that next move that could go viral. And as time goes by, it just gets more incredible. Like, these kids are amazing, you know, like, truly amazing. I'm proud of where the culture has gone. I'm proud of my personal students, you know, and it's just a great thing. In my days, they looked at us all as, you know, street thugs and, and gangs. And people immediately think of the guy dancing on a street corner on your subway train, passing a hat around for coins. But right now, globally, breaking is at an all-time high. And with breaking going to the Olympics in Paris in 2024, the progression of the dance, it's escalating at an incredibly fast rate. It's gotten to the point where now I'm learning from my students. Like, I'm trying to teach, and I'm looking at them like, whoa, you got to teach me that so I can teach it to the next person, you know? When it comes to the 100th anniversary of hip-hop, as far as dance goes, we're going to talk about that first B-boy and B-girl that came home with an Olympic gold medal. To me, it's exciting because before, dancing was just an art. Now, it could get you on box Wheaties, you know? So, just thinking of it like that, it's, it's just incredible. These Olympics coming up will be the first time that I cannot be 100% patriotic because no matter what country you're from, when you go up there and do your thing, you are representing me. You understand? I don't care if it's Russia, Japan, China. I have a few horses in the race already as an instructor, as a coach. But whether they're my students or not, I'm looking at these dancers like this is an extension of me. This is something I could be proud of, you know, even if it's not me on that podium. It's something that I could be proud of. I recently did an interview and they asked me which country is going to get the gold. And I said, I don't know, but I guarantee you they'll thank me. You know, hip hop, you mention hip hop to people and they will always say that phrase you hear so often, peace, love, unity, and having fun. You know what I'm saying? So when we look at hip hop as a peaceful culture, that's bringing so many people together. I mean, I'm a kid from the South Bronx. I could go anywhere in this world and have a bed, have a plate of food. You understand what I'm saying? Have a friend. Because not everybody likes the music a rapper makes. Not everybody likes the sounds that comes out of the DJ when he's scratching. Not everybody looks at graffiti as an art. But you put a breaker anywhere on this planet, people are going to stop. They're going to watch, they're going to smile, they're going to clap, they'll throw money at you. It is arguably 
the most accepted element of hip-hop. So as dancers, we have to start seeing ourselves as ambassadors of peace. I hope I don't get canceled for what I'm about to say, but hip-hop has brought together more people from different colors, languages, religions, nationalities, and cultures than any political or religious leader on the history of this planet. So I've always looked at hip-hop as God's last attempt to help us get this thing right. You can follow Ness on Instagram at BXAlienNess. There's a whole world of entertainment on Vera, and to guide us through that world we have a special section called What's On, and also a special guest critic called Al Horner to give us his film and TV picks. Hello Al. Hey Johnny, how's it going? Uh, very well, thank you. Are you ready to recommend us some films, Al? I certainly am, yeah. Uh, we've got a good batch this month. Um, a number of great animations, actually, which uh, surprise me. That's not my go-to genre, surprisingly, um, but... Uh, Lots to pick from this month, beginning with Elemental. Elemental is a Pixar movie. I'm not sure what your relationship with Pixar films is, Johnny. Are you a fan? I mean, they make, they make me cry. They make me laugh. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch every Pixar movie, basically. Yeah, I mean, if a Pixar movie doesn't make you cry, that's the litmus test of like, okay, there's something wrong with this person, potentially. They're, yeah. they're, they've got a heart made of stone. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I almost resent Pixar movies a little bit at this stage, you know, because I'm like, well, I am going to cry. So, you know, well done, Pixar. <laughs> yeah, that is like one of the ways in which, um, you know, their track record to date has almost become a challenge for them in this kind of current era of the studio. So they've had this recent string of films that have underperformed. They need a hit. This movie was an important one for the company, and I'm glad to report it absolutely delivers. It's so, so good. And what's the premise? Well, at first glance, it's kind of a familiar format for Pixar. So Pixar have got this tradition of, of doing stories somewhat along the lines of what if such and such had feelings? Yes. So yeah. what if toys had feelings? What if bugs had feelings? What if a car had feelings? What if a robot had feelings? Yeah. What if monsters had feelings? Mm -hmm. And uh, this time around, it's what if chemical elements had feelings so, so yeah you've got um two characters and it's sort of a, a slight romeo and juliet thing of like one's fire one's water mm. on paper they're not supposed to mix but um yeah what, what unfolds through the coming together of these two characters is this beautiful rom-com that's that's also kind of part environmental disaster movie it's part kind of family drama about like the immigrant experience and uh, racial divides and things like that all kind of you know, ambitious stuff for what is ostensibly you know regarded as a kid's movie but yeah it kind of comes together to form like one of their most ambitious projects for a good while and um i had such a blast with it the visuals as you might imagine are mesmerizing and mm. the whole thing takes place in this city called element city and uh yeah the sort of world building of that place you immediately want to go there and look around and, and get into trouble so in some ways, it is following the kind of tried and true Pixar formula, 
but it is kind of a return to form would you say yeah i'd say so massively like and, and that seems to be backed up by the way that typically movies come out and they either sort of perform in that first week on release mm. or they don't and the alarm bells were sounded when this film kind of came out and didn't do big numbers in its first week of release and people started to panic that you know what did this mean for pixar as a company could they keep making these 200 million dollar animations but word of mouth has spread and spread and spread just based on the quality of this story which is really touching really heartwarming really funny in places and as a result like it's had this kind of half-life in terms of its kind of box office performance that um has been pretty remarkable it seems to keep going and going and uh yeah now it's kind of been regarded very much as as a as a commercial success al thank you what's your next film recommendation Dun, 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 dun. Indiana Jones, he's back. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> more, more Indiana Jones. Yeah, the fifth film in this franchise. It's called The Dial of Destiny, which is a, you know, to be honest, it, like that name just makes me think of like dial up internet mm. and that kind of weird sound that you used to get when you used to have to like log on that was like you know yeah. those crazy noises it's a film about indiana jones you know reaching his later years having internet connectivity issues the entire yes. two hours of him trying to figure out his wi-fi yeah it's, yeah, uh, yeah. it's well that would probably be very accurate i think well yeah i mean we joke but it's um certainly a theme of this film is indiana jones played of course by harrison ford he's getting on a bit mm. you know he's um I forget how old Harrison was when he actually filmed it, but um, the character certainly who is this, who has been for all of, uh, you know, certainly my film going life, this kind of, you know, adventurer, this physically very fit adventurer, he is now kind of facing his mortality a little bit. And there are things that have happened in his personal life mm. that have caused him to kind of have a, a slight kind of uh, confrontation with, with mortality and the idea of life and death. And um the film begins with him like very much not seeking another adventure and he's not in a good place and over the course of this uh <laughs> this sort of quite strange quite bonkers tale he's kind of roped back in for for one more one, one more exciting tale and uh, phoebe waller bridge is involved in this film is she not she is yeah i mean it's it's quite interesting it's obviously been a few years now since fleabag which um was such a phenomenon when it came out um and, and a lot of people were wondering what is phoebe Wallerbridge going to do next she can pretty much be anything she can she can go anywhere and do anything in terms of her career now after the launch pad of that series this is probably i guess her first big blockbuster she's almost like the sort of co-lead with harrison in this film and she really steps up like she is completely natural there's a lot of quite physically demanding action that she just like takes on with absolutely zero qualms and uh yeah mm. does really well with but yeah she is great in it and she lends the film something that uh the last film in the franchise crystal skull which of course was famously panned uh that film kind of lacked so yeah it's it's great like uh phoebe in particular really pulls the movie into I, I guess kind of modern era not in terms of like when it's set because this is set i think in the 60s but yeah in terms of kind of like the series has sometimes had somewhat dated uh approaches to women and to uh other races of course it's um yeah temple of doom was not dated fantastically well in that regard mm. 
so yeah like phoebe and a number of other elements in the movie kind of make this quite a modern telling of of the indiana jones fable so is indiana jones woke now <laughs> uh i don't know that i go that far but uh yeah there are there are certainly elements of it where he's he's facing resistance to his old timey ways uh mm. in ways that are refreshing okay excellent so indiana jones the fifth one in the franchise absolutely worth watching thank you what is your third and final film pick please al i told you there was more animation to come uh my next pick is teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem Mm. which yeah i did not have on my list of like most anticipated movies of 2023 i uh i did know that it was directed by jeff rowe who made a Netflix movie called The Mitchells versus the Machines, which, if you have not seen, is one of the best yeah, kids' animation. Quality. Oh my god, it's so good. And uh, it's very much in that kind of Spider-Verse school of like very inventive animation and very quippy dialogue. Um, yeah, so it, it wasn't really till I knew that this had some of the creative team behind that movie that the kind of I, I started to get excited for this. I was a big Turtles fan as a kid, but I, I just didn't know that a Turtles film could be as good as this movie is. It's so, so exciting and ambitious and stylistic. It has this kind of sketchbook aesthetic where it feels like the characters are kind of being drawn in 2D in front of you in, in some sort of way. And it's just brilliant fun, brilliantly ambitious. And it's everything that a Turtles movie should be, I think. Wow. High praise. Let's move into TV, please, Al. Absolutely. Have you seen Poker Face, Johnny? Uh, you know what? I haven't, but it's on my list because I love Natasha Lyonne. Yeah, she is amazing. I loved her a couple of years ago in Russian Doll, and I'm always interested in what she's up to. But Poker Face is definitely one of my top TV shows of the year so far. It's by Ryan Johnson who did Knives Out and uh, did one of the Star Wars movies, The Last Jedi. It's very much in the tradition of Knives Out in that it's a whodunit kind of mystery, but it, but this is very much its own thing. And it has like a really fun sort of high concept. So Natasha plays this character who just has this inherent borderline supernatural ability to tell when someone is lying. She can't explain it. She doesn't know what it is or where it's from, but uh, she just always just has this sixth sense. She can immediately tell with absolute certainty that she's being lied to. And she basically drives from small town to small town in America, picking up like random little jobs. She's kind of a nomadic character. And she finds herself like in these situations where, you know, someone's been murdered and she, she kind of <laughs> finds herself at the, at the center of these mysteries and ends up solving these mysteries. But she doesn't turn up in most episodes until about like a third of the way through. So the format always feels so fresh. They're able to do so uh, so many genres and so many kind of different types of mysteries and different types of crimes within the show because essentially it resets every single week, every single episode. It's a new batch of characters. It's a new setting. And um, I never guessed what was going to happen. I never guessed who did it. And uh it keeps you on your toes that way and in a way that's really hard to write and, and really masterful in the way it's pulled off in the show. Excellent. Okay, uh, more TV, please, Al. Well, Johnny, my next pick is a little gem. Probably haven't heard of it. I like to keep people like informed about new discoveries, shows they haven't heard of. Yeah, yeah. The Simpsons? 
You may not have come across it. Uh, I, I sort of... Um, is that the one about uh, mobsters in New Jersey? <laughs> Close. The Simpsons is, of course, like an, a cultural institution. We all know The Simpsons. But um, The Simpsons season 34, which has just come to the in-flight entertainment service on Vera, um, it's something else. Like, the show has been kind of maligned. It's, it's regarded in the culture as having dropped off. It had this, like, amazing run of early seasons. Maybe the first 10 seasons are considered, like, the golden age. And since then, it's almost become a bit of a punchline how, like, the show dropped off and how it's not what it was and all this kind of thing. I would challenge anyone to watch season 34 and tell me that the show doesn't still have some of its old spark. I think because they brought in some new writers and freshened up their team, it has, like this spark to it that is really kind of reminiscent in some ways of of the early years um some of the storylines are as kind of outrageous and inventive as as kind of classic simpsons episodes and yeah i picked this because i just think the show is it's i'm gonna whisper it it might be back to its best it's i'm a massive simpsons fan and i don't say that lightly i mean I will watch this just to see if you're right, Al, because that's such a bold claim. I know, I know. And like, it's not as kind of um, overrun with big celebrity guest uh, voices now. There's a renewed focus on like the storytelling. A lot of the plots are quite emotive in, in the way that some of the best classic episodes are. On the subject of uh, celebrity guests, so Natasha Leone is actually, it just occurs to me, is in one of the episodes this season. Mm. Aubrey Plaza is in the mix as well. So they, they are still getting some interesting guests involved, but it's um it's not really about those anymore in the way that I think it was in kind of like season 20, that kind of time. It's really, really, really on form this season, and I think you'd have a great time watching it. Okay, 34 is the magic number for The Simpsons. It sure is. Um, All right, Al, what's your final TV pick, please? This is a bit of a crazy one. Mrs. Davis. It's co-created by Damon Lindelof, who you may know for Lost, and by Tara Hernandez, who I think worked on, like, The Big Bang Theory and a number of comedies. When you watch the show you really feel the accumulation of those two backgrounds. Like it is this very outrageous drama, thriller, part comedy that kind of is all to do with with AI and a sort of bombastic nun taking on the system. And uh, it's very funny. It's also very thrilling. It's also completely out of its brain insane. I don't know how you'd necessarily reduce that to to a genre. Comedy, science fiction, drama, maybe? Mm. It doesn't feel very succinct, but uh, that's the best you can kind of do when trying to reduce this incredibly bonkers show to one line, I suppose. It seems like they missed a trick not calling it none too pleased. (laughs) You should save that for your own TV show, Johnny. (laughs) About about a revenge-seeking nun. I think so. I think that would work. (laughs) I'm on board. I'd watch that. Um, okay, so it's a, a genre-bending none thing. Yeah, and it's uh, quite timely because it's all to do with artificial intelligence. So you have Sister Simone, who is the kind of protagonist, and uh, she's taking on this this AI known as Mrs. Davis. And the Holy Grail is in the mix at one point. Like it's it's mm. just like delightfully insane. And although it is kind of like quite light and it doesn't take itself too seriously. There is also something quite timely, you know, we we are kind of all talking about AI at the minute and that's something kind of societally on our minds. So yeah, it's very, very relevant, very current. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you, Al, for those picks. Uh, On the subject of AI, do you think we will ever be replaced by AI? 
Well, Johnny, let me ask you a question. What does Al look like when it's written down? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Are you a computer, Al? I couldn't possibly tell you that, Johnny. I'm going to send you a <laughs> capture, okay? <laughs> they can figure that out now. Oh, can they? Yeah, oh, well. we're doomed. We're doomed. Yeah. So, uh, well, but no, I'm very human. I mean, I'm all too human. <laughs> so you're human. Yes, that's why you were um, laying it on thick with the Pixar stuff, right? Trying to pretend that you, uh, you feel emotions. Yeah, I know you're gay, Mel. <laughs> oh, no, I'm busted. You're on to me. Robot or not, thank you for your uh, recommendations and we'll speak to you soon. <laughs> thank you, Johnny. That was so much fun. That's it for this month's Vera Magazine podcast. I've been Johnny Ensel, almost certainly not a robot. The Vera Magazine podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. Thanks as ever for listening in. See you next month. <laughs>